1: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now, back to the show. Coming up. <laughs> As we near the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday Monday, how should we view his legacy in the face of pandemic disparities? Racial unrest and an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We forget the kind of tremendous policing that the civil rights movement endured and
2: that contemporary protests endured today. And yet somehow law enforcement was so
1: unprepared for last week. What the truth about King's civil rights era teaches America about the racial oppression of today, then COVID-19 behind the wall. These conditions are only going to exacerbate whatever challenges they have. Film raises awareness and lifts up the voices of Dealing with the pandemic in prison. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. A global pandemic hit the black community hard, then protests and riots following the death of George Floyd and most recently backlash to progress as Trump loyalists stormed the U.S. Capitol in a violent and deadly act of insurrection. All battles that are rooted in racism. But how does the legacy of Dr. King connect with this civil rights war of today? With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Gene Theodore Harris, a professor of political science at. Berkeley. She's also the author of A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Welcome to Flashpoint.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. Dr. King was just one figure in an ongoing battle for Black freedom. Can you try to put, if you can, this past year's struggle with racism in context when we link it to the civil rights movement where King lived?
2: We all know the civil rights movement, right? It's now one of the most storied and celebrated parts of American history. But in fact, the way we know the civil rights movement, the stories we tell about the civil rights movement today are limited, they're distorted. They're often inaccurate, right? So they don't do justice to Dr. King. And they certainly don't do justice to the like myriad of people and places and movements that made up the Black freedom struggle of the 50s and 60s and 70s. I think we've really reduced the civil rights movement to this kind of a tale of good guys and bad guys, right? So there's like good Southern Black people, bad Southern sheriffs nice northern white liberals and that like and then it's just like this like people struggle and win and there's a nice happy ending and it makes it too easy and too clean and too short Um, and I think somewhat that fable makes it hard to see our history you know substantive way and therefore it's hard to see where we are today
1: so what's the truth if we put it in context because a lot of people think you know I have a dream was Dr. King right but he was actually quite radical for his time.
2: Absolutely, right? So even the I Have a Dream speech, right? If you actually look at the beginning of that speech, Dr. King is talking about how America has given black people a bad check and they refuse to believe the Bank of America is bankrupt and they've come to collect. The way you make good if you've given someone a bad check is that you have to give someone a good check, right? What Dr. King is talking about at the beginning of that March on Washington speech is what we might call reparations. Real material things are needed to write the scales. And that's not the way we tend to remember that moment. Another thing about the March on Washington, today it's celebrated as the most American thing of the 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. At the time, it wasn't seen like that. Every single DC cop was on duty that day. Hundred and fifty FBI agents were in the crowd that day. They canceled elective surgeries. They closed liquor stores. They told staff, like Congresspeople's staff members, not to come in. They prepared for the march on Washington like it was a military battle. And in fact, it is after the march on Washington that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and Robert Kennedy, you know, gets Robert Kennedy to sign off on the expansion of surveillance of Martin Luther King, right? So. Our notion of King, the the like respectable, beloved guy just doesn't, is not actually
1: historically true. They saw him as a threat.
2: They They thought as an extreme threat. In 1963, they thought he was the, they called him the most dangerous threat. And most Americans didn't approve of the March on Washington. Only 23% of Americans surveyed by Gallup in the week before the March on Washington approved of the March on Washington, right? That's not how we remember it. We think, oh, there were the bad guys, but most good, decent people were with the Civil Rights Movement. And that's just, again, not true. I think another aspect, and this is something I've started to get very interested in, is we tend to trap King in the South. Dr. King, from the beginnings of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, He's not just pointing at the South, he's also pointing at the North. And over and over, beginning in 57, he's saying, he's calling for a Northern liberalism that's actually liberal at home. He's saying, you can't just talk about Mississippi. You can't just talk about Alabama. You need to fix your own house. By the mid sixties, he's getting more and more disillusioned, right? Because you see, again, many Northerners so proud of themselves for supporting the Southern movement But then when King's talking about police brutality in New York, when he's talking about school segregation in Chicago, when he's talking about housing segregation in L.A., right, then those same political leaders are like want nothing to do with it. So I think that's a king we're not used to. Right. A king that's speaking out about police brutality in the early 60s, a king that comes to both New York in 1964 in LA in 1965 and calls for a civilian complaint review board.
1: Same thing that you hear people talking about right now.
2: Right. But this is not a King that we're like, we've sort of airbrushed that away. Right. So the King that is saying this is a problem, the King that is saying, okay, there's been all this attention to to police brutality in Birmingham, but Northern police brutality has been sort of justified and hidden and King's calling this out. And yet that's not how we, know him. That's not how we remember him. And so what it means to remember Dr. King, I think more fully and more accurately is to see him, you know, calling out the hypocrisies, calling out the comfortable vanity of Northern liberals, calling out the thin veneer of racial self-satisfaction. These are quotes from Dr. King, right? But again, it's not a Dr. King we know that well.
1: Let's dig into that a little bit because uh, you've said in the past that his radicalness has been whitewashed uh, and, and, many have tried to separate, uh, a King method from what you see right now in Black Lives Matter, right? But you have said that, Hey, they're not that, they're not that different after all. Explain this. The way we
2: tend to look back on the civil rights movement is again, people imagine, Oh, they would have been with Dr. King if they were alive. Oh, most decent people were with the civil rights movement, right? That's not true. Most people at the time weren't, didn't support the civil rights movement, didn't like Dr. King, right? They, he made them uncomfortable. He was disruptive. He believed in disruption for many of the same reasons that we see contemporary activists believe in disruption in that part of how oppressive systems work, right? Is that, that people are comfortable in them. Because you know, he kept getting like accused of being unreasonable. He kept getting accused of being divisive, you know, increasing tension. And he would say over and over, more eloquently than I will say it right now, right? But we are just bringing the, the hostility and tension to the surface. It's there. And we need to do that to actually fix this injustice.
1: And I got to point out and add on this because he wasn't even, I mean, he did not necessarily approve of even riots, but he didn't necessarily condemn riots either.
2: And he, he was very clear that it's not enough to condemn riots if you don't see the conditions that have led to them. And and King is very clear that you see in most of these cities movements for years trying to set, trying to call out kind of housing segregation, you know, unequal city services, you know, ghettoization, school segregation and inequality. And over and over city leaders, whether it's in L.A. or Harlem or Newark, right, are ignoring, are gaslighting, are you know, discrediting movements in their cities, and so king is King is saying this is a false surprise at these uprisings because people have been bringing these issues to you, and you have not you know you have not listened
1: and the, the riot is the is the you know language of the unheard, right? He said that repeatedly, and so let's shift gears a bit because the Black Lives Matter movement is founded by black queer women. Um And but when you look back at the civil rights movement, a lot of times you only see the men with the exception of Rosa Parks and a few others. But what's the truth?
2: I mean, first, I think we could look at Rosa Parks. Right. Everyone knows Rosa Parks, except most of what we know about Rosa Parks is narrow, distorted and wrong. Right. She gets to walk on to history on that one day on the bus and then that's it. Right. When the actual Rosa Parks is a lifelong freedom fighter, she's been an activist for two decades before her bus stand, and she's going to be an activist for 40 years after. Um, and it's not just about the bus, right? One of the issues that you can see across Rosa Parks's life are issues of criminal justice. Mm. So she's uh, working on issues of police brutality. She's working on issues of Black men being wrongfully accused of crimes And she's working on issues of trying to make the law accountable to black people and particularly black women who have been raped and sexually assaulted. And we see that, you know, we see her doing that in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and 70s. Right. So uh, Rosa Parks will describe her personal hero being Malcolm X. But we, ca- we set up in our imagination these like Malcolm's over here and King's over here. And to, to somebody like Parks, you know, she has tremendous love and respect for Dr. King and tremendous love and respect for Malcolm X.
1: But there are other women as well, many times that are left out.
2: Yeah. So if we think again, let's go back to the Montgomery bus boycott. Where do we get the Montgomery bus boycott? We get it because so the night that Rosa Parks is arrested and she decides to pursue her legal case, she calls a young black lawyer named Fred Gray. And late that night. Fred Gray calls the head of the Women's Political Council a woman by the name of Joanne Robinson. Uh, And the Women's Political Council had for a couple of years been working on issues of bus segregation. And so that very night, December 1st, 1955, in the middle of the night, Joanne Robinson, who is a professor at Alabama State College, basically goes to the college and with the help of a colleague and two students runs off 50,000 leaflets that say another woman has been arrested on the bus boycott on Monday, because Monday is when Rosa Parks is going to be arraigned in court. Um, So I think in in the way it often is taught is like Martin Luther King organized the boycott. And Martin Luther King will emerge as a leader of the boycott. But who organized the boycott initially is the women of the Women's Political Council.
1: I love that story. And can we just connect all of this to what we have seen today. FBI, when the March on Washington happened, you had the FBI full out. You think about the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, type of um, militarization of police that was there. And then you look at the insurrection.
2: One of the things that we know about sort of racial injustice is that it's shape-shifting, right? And so I think all of those things are happening. But certainly, if we think about kind of law enforcement and sort of danger and who is seen as dangerous and the kind of the advanced preparation for some kinds of protests in Washington. And then what seems to have been an inadequate preparation, most protests near public buildings in DC, you don't get to bring polls. You don't get to, you know, let al- I mean, let alone breach the, all that stuff is taken from you. And so, right. The kind of who gets seen as somebody worthy and needing policing right, is, is I think a very important question, both then and now, right? And I think sometimes we forget, again, in this way that we've airbrushed and whitewashed Dr. King, right, airbrushed and whitewashed Rosa Parks, right, that, that kind of tremendous policing that the civil rights movement endured, and the contemporary protests endure today, right, And, and many people have been sort of showing us all the arrests that happened this summer around you know, many of the Black Lives Matter protests across the country. And yet somehow law enforcement
1: was so unprepared for last week and
2: it raises a lot of questions
1: definitely does. And we're about to wrap up. That act of insurrection on the Capitol was in many ways, in in many minds, a corresponding white backlash to Black and brown progress. And you can't forget that on next Wednesday, we'll be swearing in the nation's first woman of color as as a vice president. And there's always this corresponding backlash. Do you see it as that? And what would Dr. King say?
2: Well, I mean, I think one of the things was you know, we wake up last Wednesday morning to the news that Reverend Raphael Warnock has become the first Black senator elected from Georgia. And this is a victory that is is a far longer path. I A lot of people are creating the, the, you know, are, are crediting the vision of Stacey Abrams, and certainly she is visionary. But we have to start much earlier than that, right? To sort of how do we get Reverend Warnock's victory? We start back, you know, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights Movement. We start with Julian Bond's victory in the Georgia State House in 1965, right? And so to me, that like within hours, right, the the momentousness of that victory, the 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 years of decades of struggle of that victory are kind of taken, like are just completely kind of papered over because these people are breaching the Capitol and like acting a fool. You know, like <laughs> so I mean. I don't, it's not just that these two things happen within hours of each other, right? It's that that, that backlash is a very real response to kind of the changing the demographics,
1: change, leadership, demographic, yeah,
2: voting patterns, electorate, right? And so and a willingness to use violence to do so, right? And I think that's also very terrifying.
1: Yeah, that's that backlash right there. Um, and so, as we wrap up, you are—you've written quite a few books. One of the most popular is the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Where can people find your 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 book?
2: Any independent bookstore can order. In many ways, more beautiful and terrible history picks up some of the themes that I began in rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And one of the things I found was that people were really hungry to understand where we get these myths and fables of the civil rights movement and then what a fuller history would look like. And so in many ways, More Beautiful and Terrible is a continuation. And then this week um I was a co-editor, we published Julian Bond's Time to Teach. Um so Julian Bond was my mentor. He was I took a class with him, I was a TA for him, and his wife and I basically He wrote out his teaching lectures in full sentences and polished them. And so she and I edited them into a book that's basically a narrative history of the Southern Civil Rights Movement by Julian Bond that came out this week. So that's very exciting.
1: Well, congratulations on your writings and on your prolific study of the Civil Rights Movement. As we celebrate this King holiday, perfect timing for you putting this all into context. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Next up, they created a film about COVID-19 behind the wall. To highlight the voices of those who are inside. An effort to raise awareness about pandemic in prisons. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear... Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our past newsmaker of the week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early all of this and more please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review now back to the show this is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is COVID-19 and prisons. According to the Pennsylvania Department of Correction website, 1100 inmates and more than 170 staff members are infected with COVID-19. 86 have died. The Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project produced an animated film on the issue. The organization's director, Sue Ming Yang, joins us alongside Chester Holman III, who was exonerated after 28 years in prison. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for thank having you. us.
3: Thank you, thank you very
1: Sue Ming. I want to start with you. I mean, the Institutional Law Project produced this video. Tell us about it and why was it important to do it?
0: Very early on when the pandemic hit, we were immediately concerned about the health and safe being of our incarcerated clients. We knew that there was not a lot of information out there. And we started getting reports of very serious issues, people not having access to basic things like soap, cleaning supplies, face masks, the inability to social distance, or the flip side of the social distancing, prisons taking the extreme stance of using severe lockdowns in an effort to control COVID-19 spread. So we are very concerned both about the health of the people in prison, especially those who are medically vulnerable. We are also very concerned about the humane conditions. We started getting reports of people living in solitary confinement, not getting access to regular medical care, not having religious accommodations or being able to talk to loved ones. In addition, we also, especially early on, people just did not have information about COVID-19 and what prisons should be doing. So we received a small grant and many thanks to the Pennsylvania Legal Aid Network. And we decided to come up with this idea of making a film both to educate hopefully people who are incarcerated via their families, let the families and community know and as the project evolved, we also felt it incredibly important to highlight the voices of those who are inside. So one piece of the film that I'm very proud of and, and really appreciate those who spoke to us are the interviews with people who are incarcerated, telling us about their experiences living in prison during COVID-19.
1: Yeah. And if you could just summarize some of what you, you heard, Suming, from these individuals.
0: People were very scared. Anxious. The lockdown conditions made it feel like they're living in a chicken coop. They had a lot of fear about dying, not having information, in part, past experiences with medical care or the lack of medical care, and then what that would mean in the pandemic. Overall, there was a lot of anxiety, fear, worry. One of the individuals that we interviewed caught COVID 19, Mm. and he talked about how difficult and painful it was having COVID 19 in prison.
1: Yeah, that has to be scary. And Chester, I want to bring you into this conversation because you spent 28 years behind bars for a crime you didn't commit. Tell us a little bit about
3: your case. Yeah, um, okay. I was uh, arrested in, uh, in 1991 for a murder. I was uh, charged with conspiracy robbery, uh, possession of an instrument of crime. It took almost two years to go to trial. We went to trial in, uh, 19, I think it was March of 93, or April of 93, I was convicted in May of 93, and I was sentenced to life in prison with a five to 10-year sentence and a one to two-year sentence, run, run consecutively. During that time, um, you know, we had the best lawyers in Philadelphia. We, we proved our case, you know, I thought beyond a reasonable doubt, but uh, we just couldn't combat the lies, and that was, it was very difficult to overcome. And like I said, it took 28 years. I mean, we, we argued all the way up to the Supreme, United States Supreme Court. At each turn, it was just a denial after denial. And, uh, you know, during that time, I just tried to uh, hold on to hope, believing yeah. that it eventually work out. Uh, they did, but you know, it took almost close to 30 years. But, and, uh, you know, here we are. Since coming home, I've uh, been able to gain employment with the uh, Institutional Law Project. Just been a blessing, I guess, in, the, in disguise, I guess, so to speak. All that time, I didn't think I was going to make it home. You know, I didn't think I was going to get out. As a young man, I watched myself get older and family members, you know, passing away and so forth. So it was a, it was a challenge, to say the least. And uh, since coming into the institution, Institutional Law Project, it allows me to kind of reach back to a lot of the guys that I left. Back in the uh, early 2000s, I actually reached out to the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project seeking help, you know, and uh, I received information that I, you know, I was uh, requesting at that time. Uh, so to find myself there now working, it's kind of surreal. And, uh, you know, to be able to help the guys that I know are writing, looking for the information that I was looking for, whether it be about, you know, uh, helping themselves or assisting their attorneys, you know, in their fights for freedom.
1: Yeah. So what was it like narrating this? You were released before COVID-19 struck the prisons, but what is it like for people who are trapped in there? And can you even imagine what it's like?
3: You know, I thank God every day I was released, I think six and a half months before COVID was announced and so forth and all that came into play. When, when Su Ming asked me to narrate, like I said, it was a no-brainer. First of all, Su Ming is, is the director of the Institutional Law Project. is a, a wonderful person, you know, and she's uh, she's very passionate about this work. So, uh, you know, we talked about it and um, knowing the conditions within the prisons, medical in prison is, is, is it's enough to keep you alive, so to speak. You know I mean, no matter what your issues are, you start off with Motrin. And then uh, it's up to you to keep going back and being persistent about your ailments trying to, you know, seek out treatment. Once you reach a certain point, then they start to address the actual issue opposed to just giving you the Motrin. You know, with this pandemic now, you know, I, I talk to a lot of guys that are still there. It's a lot of fear there because they don't receive the information outside of looking at the news, you know, or watching CNN. So that's where they pretty much gain their information from.
1: And and I wanted to, both of you, to address this idea of solitary confinement because I don't think people understand that one of the containment Um, methods was to keep people locked in their cells 23 hours a day. Chester, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that during your 28 years when you were in prison, but what is that like for someone being unable to move around and being locked up so long?
0: We are getting continual reports of people being in lockdown conditions, which is just a code word for solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. We are now 10 months in. So at first we thought maybe a week, two weeks, Possibly that could make sense. But now, 10 months, when people are in their cells 23 plus hours a day, sometimes not even getting out for a few days, that is highly problematic. It absolutely endangers people's physical and mental health. So I still have people calling me, clients calling me. And I remember someone saying, I never had mental health issues before, being, and he was lucky to get a call out first. But then he said, I've never had mental health issues, but really being in this cell almost 24 hours a day, I've thought about doing something. That just had me extremely concerned. We know that roughly 25% of people have serious mental illness in prison, and these conditions are only going to exacerbate whatever challenges they have already.
1: And I, and I think about that Chester because folks are always like, well, they did something, so they're in prison. They deserve it. Whatever happens, happened. They should have thought about that before they got locked up. Chester, you didn't do anything. Right. Respond to that.
3: Yeah, uh, and, I, and I understand that that mindset. You know, with, uh, with in regards to the punishment for the crimes that you know people have committed. The institution that I was at was a minimum uh, uh, security uh, institution where a lot of guys were. Pretty much getting out within five years, so you know, these guys are coming back out to society. I believe that you know, not everyone in prison is, is, is guilty. You know, there's a lot of guys in there that are falsely accused, or the crime doesn't always necessarily fit the sentence that these guys receive. Speaking for myself, you know, to be there and subjected to that for like almost more than half my life, uh, it's difficult, like I said, and you don't know who's who. You know, a lot of guys claim to be innocent, and uh, it's not necessarily always the case, but in some cases, that is true, and yeah. uh, these guys to the same thing that guys that are guilty are,
1: And it disproportionately impacts black and brown people too, because we have systems in place um, that are racist. We got to just say sure. that. And yes. so you, you've got people put in here. You, you I've, I've talked to a guy who was uh, supposed, a, a family of a guy who was supposed to get out in like six months when the pandemic started, got COVID-19 and died. Right. I mean, you know, he was supposed to be out in six months. And now it it was a death sentence because the pandemic hit.
0: And on top of that, one of the basic founding principles of our country is the United States Constitution. And in that, it envisions a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. So no matter what you believe in terms of whether people are not deserve punishment, we as a society have already decided and determined that people are entitled to humane treatment because the reality is they've already lost their freedom. That itself is a tremendous punishment and a tremendous consequence. Yeah. Therefore, it's it's important that we as a civilized society believe in humane treatment even while you are incarcerated. So you do absolutely under the United States Constitution have the right to be safe from, safe from violence, to have access to medical care, and to be humanely treated, had to have safe and sanitary conditions of confinement.
1: Yeah, it's like you could take my freedom, but you don't have the right to take my life, even right. in a pandemic. And so, Chester, I you settled a claim against the city of Philadelphia for a record amount, $9.8 million. Is that enough for the injustice? Could it ever be enough?
3: For me personally, I mean, you know, people hear that amount and they think, well, you know, he, he's been compensated. But like I said, you know, you can't get back those years, you know, uh, you know, as far as me having a family, uh, a career, I mean, you know, it was was, uh it was taken away and so now i'm trying to rebuild and like i said you know this 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 settlement it, it doesn't erase what's been done in this process i lost my mother you know my grandparents you know my nephew and uh you know that was time spent with them and uh you know i can never get that back so this settlement for me is like i said it's just an opportunity for me to help my family going forward for all the sacrifices they made throughout the years you know for me to you know, survive in there, so to speak. But my, I guess the biggest takeaway for me is the case is it, it's settled, it's done, it's over with, it's behind me now. It allows me to move forward.
1: So. Yeah, and build a new life. You still got a lot of life to live. And yeah. so I, I wish you uh, luck on that. And so as Thank we you. wrap up, suming Ming, I want, where can people find this video? And what do you want people to take away from this?
0: The video is available on YouTube. You can watch it. It's under 15 minutes, so hopefully. And we hope that it'll give people a better sense and understanding of what it is like to be incarcerated during COVID-19, and we hope that it'll inspire you to take further action, whether it be follow us on social media, educate yourself, advocate on behalf of people who are incarcerated, support the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project in however way, whether it's through your efforts, advocacy, or financially. Overall, we hope that people learn more about the issue and take whatever actions that can be done to improve the
1: lives of those who are incarcerated say thank you so much to sue Mengye and to chester holman the third for coming on flashpoint and talking about this very important issue in the news
0: thank you so much for
1: having us next up philly's home to the largest king day of service in the nation
4: i think there will be
1: thousands and
4: tens of thousands of
1: volunteers the pandemic pivot for the king holiday we'll be right back Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KWW we are all about community, and the Martin Luther King Jr. Federal Holiday is Monday, and Philadelphia boasts the largest MLK Day of Service in the nation. But this year, things will be quite different. Here to talk about the 26th annual Greater Philadelphia Martin Luther King Day of Service is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Global Citizen Founder, Todd Bernstein. Todd, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks, Cherry. Good to be here with you. So I've been there with you for many years celebrating the King Day of Service but this year is going to be so different. Explain what it is usually like and how you had to shift things because of the pandemic.
4: Well we normally have about 150,000 registered volunteers in about 1,800 projects. I think there will be thousands and tens of thousands of volunteers but a lot of those projects will be virtual, which makes it difficult in one sense, but it also opens the opportunity for a lot of people to be involved in projects that are particularly interesting because really there's no capacity limit. But of course we're in a pandemic and we have to adjust to that. And we have been working with the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium, Dr. Ayla Stanford and her team at Ger- Gerard College, where we normally have up to 5,000 volunteers and 100 projects, we will be doing COVID testing only. And that will be both drive-through and walk-in testing from 9 a.m., to noon, I think it's perhaps the mo- perhaps the most important thing we've ever done. We're doing that in partnership with Penn Medicine, Children's Hospital, Johnson and Johnson, Independence Blue Cross, and other health providers. And it is really uh, also a focus on uh, providing opportunities for underserved communities because disparities in healthcare is a, is a key issue that we've all become more aware of uh, in this health crisis.
1: And I think the disparities that were highlighted throughout uh, this pandemic has sort of led uh, to this year's theme. Am I correct?
4: Yeah. In, in fact, in 1966, Dr. King said, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhuman. And boy, I mean, it's, you know, 50 plus years later, um, we can say the same thing. And uh, that's why our focus and theme is justice and the COVID-19 health crisis. And I think the other thing that's important is out of the pandemic are a number of related issues. So um, in the afternoon at three o'clock, we'll be having a virtual conversation on Dr. King, racial justice um, and systemic racism in the delivery of healthcare. Uh, And that's why Dr. Stanford started the the, uh, Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium because she saw that that, uh, particularly black and brown people were not afforded the same access. Um, Another issue is food insecurity. We'll have several distribution sites around the city, including at uh, Enon Tabernacle Baptist Church. Um, We'll have a, a career exploration fair so many people who are out of work. And um, that will provide an opportunity for people to learn about available jobs, go go through um, soft skills workshops and meet with industry professionals. Another uh, interesting project will be a training session for volunteers to serve in the uh, city's Medical Reserve Corps. These are our volunteers who have been at uh, testing sites and will be volunteering at the general rollout of the vaccine. Uh, They volunteer in future health emergencies. So there is so much uh, going on. We do our annual civic engagement expo with great community organizations providing opportunities to serve throughout the year. But again, you know, we never lose sight of uh, Dr. King and his fight for social justice and the need to not just celebrate Dr. King's legacy of action on King Day, but every day.
1: People can s- still sign up projects and link no. their projects to uh, to you guys as well because you also have a lot of other organizations.
4: And that And that is the most important point. It's not about our organization. We're just sort of a conduit and connector, but it's really about the hundreds of organizations that embrace this day uh, in a way to be empowered um, by uh, bringing people together to, to take on challenges in the community that they think are important. Um, and all of this uh, can be learned about at our website at mlkdayofservice.org. You'll see the the links to different virtual opportunities and for the, um, for the, the fewer in-person opportunities. Um, you'll learn about those as well. But of course, we have to just give the you know warning to people to be careful to exercise all the medical precautions. And if you're in a vulnerable risk group, um, I would say please take advantage of a virtual opportunity again at mlkdayofservice.org.
1: Yeah, check them out and come on down on Monday, January 18th from 9 to 12. I would get there early uh, for the testing from the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium. I'll be there. Todd will be there uh, and we'll be celebrating. Uh, This is an opportunity if you've had symptoms, if you don't, if you know somebody, get tested. That's how we stop the spread of COVID-19 in community.
4: And and as a friend uh, uh, said to me yesterday, this is not just about a volunteer project in the COVID testing, this is really about
1: saving lives. Check them out, mlkdayofservice.org. Todd Bernstein, King Day organizer, keep it going. Thank you, Cherry. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.